the good news. In the days of Noah, God was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved his heart. He saw that the wickedness of man was great, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Because of man, the earth was filled with violence. What is evil but the extreme hatred of God? It's a hatred filled with violence, violence against God, violence against man made in God's image, on strangers, neighbors, and even ourself. It is a desire to destroy in any way possible the God who is life. The absolute pinnacle of this violence against God was seen when Israel joined with Rome to crucify the Son of God. Jesus was mocked, he was tortured, he was left to die in a most ignominious death at the hands of violent men set out to murder God. All around Jesus were the evil intentions of man, yet emerging from the midst of that extreme violence, God demonstrated his love, an extreme love to wicked, evil sinners. A new world began that day, a world no longer characterized by wicked hearts permeated with the violence against God. It was a new world where new hearts were put into man, hearts filled with the love of God. God's love was stronger than man's evil. Love conquered violence that day. And as one man put it, love is most violent to save. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Let all God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land utterly desolate. 
Yahweh has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. We'll turn now to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Let us turn now to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked pal, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let's come before our Father in prayer. Lord, we ask as we stand in your presence to hear from you that you would speak. Lord, your words are the ones that are purified seven times, refined in a furnace. Your words are good words. They create, they lift up, they judge rightly. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, purify us at the coal on our lips so that we would speak rightly as you speak. Give us open ears to hear today from you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. In order to understand our passage today in the center of James about the tongue, we have to come to grips with how God made the world and how God made us. We are people of words. When I was young, uh, I didn't like to talk. For those of you that remember, I held up a lot of walls in corners. So it's great structural rigidity. But uh, there can be a sense of piousness about, about that attitude in which you take the Proverbs, you take even what James says, be slow to speak. And there's a a certain form of self-righteousness that can occur in people like me that are bent towards silence. And James does say, be slow to speak. 
However, we are people of words. It's inescapable. God made the heavens and the earth by words. God made us by breathing into the soil. In, in James chapter 1, it says that He birthed us by His will through the Word, and He implanted in us His Word. We're people that are made of words. And when you think through how life goes, we come to grips with the fact that everything we do is composed of words, of logos. And so words have two Two categories. They create and they divide. So you think back through Genesis when God spoke and he said, let there be light. He made light out of his word. Our words are a reflection of that because we're people born of his word. So when we speak, our words have power. They go out from us and we know from John that Jesus is the word. He goes out and the word has a life of its own. It's powerful. It creates and our words are a reflection of, not, of that. Not that I can say, let there be light and there will be light. But when we speak, our words go forth from us and they do something. They don't just re return empty-handed. Empty now, what they do depends on the content of those words. The second thing that we see from Genesis is that words divide. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's how God made the world. Remember, he spoke and he divided light from darkness. He divided the waters above from the waters below. And we read this morning in the book of Acts, the, the, the cloven tongues of fire on, on the heads of the apostles when they speak through the Spirit as God spoke and a new creation issued forth from those tongues of fire. It divided 3,000 people that day believed they were pierced to the heart and they were called into the family of God and there was a division. It was a right division. But our words also can divide both for good and for evil. And so creation and division, they go together. And what we say and even what we don't say, we can't escape that we're people of words. And so this week... As the Supreme Court nominee sat and was questioned, she, she was asked, can you define a woman? She chose not to speak, other than saying, no, I cannot. But even in that not speaking, she was creating and dividing, or maybe we could say destroying. She was taking away the God-given definition of that word by her words, swallowing it, swallowing it up so that it has no meaning anymore. I've told this anecdote to, to some of you. A, a few years ago, I was reading an article, and it was about, it was about words and how, how we interact with them. So words have meaning for us. They affect what we can see. And this is part of, part of James's point today. And this, this account, it wasn't written by a Christian, but instead it was just an observation. It was an observation about through history, about the words of color. And they, the, the, the implication was, unless we have a word for a given thing, we, we can't observe it. We don't see it. And so in our culture, we have a word for, for green and a word for blue. 
But in other cultures in, in past history, they didn't have a word for both of those. And, and functionally, they cannot see the difference. But in, Amazon, in the Amazon tribes, this is one of, one, of the, uh, one of the groups that they did this study on, they had a huge number of words for green because of where they lived. And they could distinguish physically all of those different colors. And when it was brought to a people group like ours, we could only see green. Well, why is that? We, we only had a word to describe that one generalized concept. Everything that we do as, as people, as we're, we're educated, we grow in words. We take dominion by words. So I thought I was escaping that by going into the field of the sciences. I could, I could sit in an office by myself and, and have no speech. Of course, functionally, that's not what happens. You're working on, on defining words so that we can understand and take dominion of the creation that God gave us. And that's how God made us to be. And so as we learn, as, as we teach our, our kids, I, I teach them new words. And with the new words come understanding and the ability to take hold and divide. And so James says, because of that, the tongue... The object in our bodies, the member that has the ability to speak forth words as God spoke, is dangerous. Every time a mouth opens in this entire world, we're playing with fire. Because those words are powerful. They go out from us and they create, they destroy, and they divide. They can tell truth about God or they can tell lies about God. And in James... This section in chapter 3 is not an aside. It's not just a proverbial nice to know, be slow to speak. It's fundamental to his message to a people that are in trouble. It's central to the book. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger. All of those three go together. But as we come to the center, this, this part about being slow to speak, it's fundamental to a people that are in trouble because that's exactly when we struggle with this, with this command. It's exactly when unrighteous words, when divisive words that divide wrongly and destroy, that they tend to come out. So let's read in James chapter 3, and then we'll go through and, and bring the context to bear on, on, this, on this short chapter before we, we dive into it. So if you would, read with me in James chapter 3. Remember, the book of James begins, Jacob writing to the 12 tribes of Israel scattered abroad. And so... That's our context. We're thinking about these 12 tribes scattered. They're in trouble. And he's telling them, count it all joy when you encounter every kind of trial. And in that trial, James, chapter, James 3, he says this, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such we shall incur mega-judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well, their whole body. Behold, the ships also, though they are great and are driven by strong winds, they're still directed by a small rudder wherever the will of the pilot desires. 
So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And this tongue, it is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is established among our members as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our beginnings and is set on fire by Gehenna. For every species, every kind of beast, of birds, of creeping things, and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is unstable evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and salty, fresh and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. My wife told me last time I gave you an outline and didn't give any time to write it down. So I'll I'll try to do better. A functional outline of this section that we're going to cover today. In verse 1, he's giving his admonition. Let not many of you be teachers. Frequently, this is set to the side. It's an admonition on, on its own, but that's not the case. It covers this section on the tongue. And we'll discuss all the implications of that, the reasons why, but you can see first and foremost is because when you're teaching, I'm teaching right now, I cannot be silent. The the words come out. And so where many words are, according to Proverbs, is much sin. Let not many of you be teachers because you'll incur stricter judgment. So then he moves on into discussing why this is. He gives us reasons. So in in verses 2 through 5, we have a section that covers the power of the tongue, the power of the word. And at first, it's neither negative nor positive. It's, it's a discussion of how great God made the word and the power that he puts into our tongues as a small member that directs our course. The second section in verses 6 through 8 covers the destruction of the tongue. So it's directional. It sets our course. And it's destructive. It can be destructive in its power. And then finally, in verses 9 through 12, he shows us that the tongue has this tendency to be double-minded. And I use that word because it's, it's a James word. It has two spirits, two breaths. And so the question at the end is, which breath does our tongue have? And James's conclusion is it can't have both. You can't produce both good and bad. It, it must not be this way because the salty will taint the fresh. So that's our working outline for this text. And now what I want to do is, is look at the context of James, remind us where we're coming from so that we can see the, the, the local context for this passage. And, and we won't describe all of it this morning because James is going to uncover for us In the subsequent verses, so in the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4, a little bit more about why he's telling us about this tongue. But first, he wants us to just think. Think about the tongue. So we'll get into that in in the next few weeks. 
But remember, James is writing, he's a bondservant of God, written to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, and his purpose is to admonish them. In the midst of their trouble, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter all kinds of trials, because you know that those trials produce endurance, or sorry, they knowing that the, the testing of your faith produces an endurance, and endurance will have its maturing results, so that you will be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, come to the good Father, the generous Father, who gives to all men generously without reproach, and he will give it to you unless you ask in judgment. Shifted here and there by winds and waves, let not that man expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. So already you can see that James has his hooks in the beginning of the epistle. He's telling us, all right, trials come, count it all joy because you know the end of the trial. Remember, he's bringing us to the end that we would be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. But if you encounter that trial and you see right away, I'm lacking. I can't have joy in the midst of this trial. I'm lacking wisdom. Then come to the one who gives generously and ask, and he will give it. But don't ask in judgment. It's the word for division. So we'll discuss that in relationship to chapter 3, because that's part of what the tongue does. Don't come to God and ask in judgment. And we, we saw in the beginning of James that there's one form of judgment in which we come to God with our tongues and say, I'm being tempted by God. This trouble is come from him, but its purpose is to destroy me. James says, do not say that with your tongue. Don't judge God that way, or you will receive nothing in exchange for your trial. Instead, come to God, confess that he's the father of lights who gives to all men good things. Every good and perfecting, maturing gift comes from the Father above who brought us forth by his will through the word. And so he says, then, his thesis statement, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And we, we move from that into a discussion of we are people of the word, so when we look in the word, look at your Genesis face, and don't forget what God calls us to be in the midst of your trouble. Don't be partial. And notice throughout James how many of the sins that he mentions are sins of the tongue. He says, you come and you say to the poor man, you stand over here by my footstool. It starts with the tongue. And he gives us this little bit of logic that we discussed a few weeks ago in James chapter 2, that we come and we're subjects of the royal law that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and that's why we cannot show partiality. We cannot be people of no mercy because, because if you show partiality, you're a transgressor of the entire law, chapter 2 Verse 9, and if you do that, know this, that the law judges everyone who falls short. And so his point there is in verse 13, is summed up, judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by this law, the law of liberty, the one that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So remember, in the midst of trouble, grab a hold of wisdom, come to God, do not judge him, instead be judged by him, knowing that the result of this is that mercy will triumph over judgment. And so then last time we discussed the end of chapter 2, how that works its way out into James's statement that 
Faith without works is dead. You cannot say to your brother or sister who's, in hung who's hungry or in need of clothing, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and then do nothing. The two don't go together. And the law of liberty will judge us if we use our mouths emptily that way. To understand how this flows into chapter 3, I would ask you to turn back to Matthew chapter 12. So James gave, gave us four examples of how, how faith must work itself out in works. The two must go together. And remember, we went back to Hebrews and, and found a functional definition of faith that we're, we're looking for, we're grasping a hold of, that which is not seen and which is not yet. It's, it's the laying a hold of the promises of God and bringing them into now through action. But Jesus adds to this in Matthew chapter 12, or, or rather forms it. And, and Matthew chapter 12, and let's look in verse 33. We'll see that, that these words go along with the connection between faith and works and speech. Jesus says this, in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man, out of his evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they will render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. It sounds remarkably like James. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Faith without works is dead. The two go hand in hand. And so... He's moving from the doing, the ergon, the working, now into speech. And Jesus says, by your speech, you are also justified. And James is going to say, that's directional. The speech is the bellwether for the actions. When, when we speak, we're setting the course of the ship. We're, we're pointing the horse in the direction that it's going to go. And so, as soon as the words escape your lips, we know what's coming next. And so Jesus says, every careless word... That word careless, it may not, may not give the entirety of Jesus' intent there. If you look it up, it's the word for no work. A word that, pro that produces no work. It's the same, same root for work that we find in James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. And so the words, the utterances that produce no work will bring forth Judgment. Let that sink in for a minute. All the words that come out of our mouths, Jesus says the ones that do no labor will bring forth judgment. Every word does some kind of work. It produces work. But of course, there's many of those that we have no intention of producing anything good. They're words. And so that's why the translators, well, they translate this careless, because, because they're useless. They're empty words. 
And it's in the abundance of those words that folly comes forth. They divide wrongly. They create wrongly. They destroy. They steal away the meaning that God has given. And so Jesus says, by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. So after telling us to reach out, grasp a hold of with faith the promise that God has given, that you would be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we operate by that faith, just like Abraham did. Abraham sought for the city whose builder is God, and so God was not ashamed to be called his God because he had just such a city in store for him. So we reach ahead and we do. Now James is getting to the very core of the issue in that speaking comes before doing. So we're working backwards now. So speak and so act, so do, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And so he gives this warning, which should be scary. It scares me. Let not many of you be teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such we shall incur mega. That's the word. Stricter, but it's, it's greater. A lot of judgment. Because... In an abundance of words, there's much sin. And so the larger the word, the bigger the voice, the more directional the word, the the more judgment that can be accrued. Every useless, non-working word we render an account for. And so that, that comes to all of us. Right, so James is speaking directly to teachers Teachers in the body, we all have some form of authority as teachers in our lives. And I think it's worth noting that, that the word teacher, it's not an office in the Bible. So it's not, the, the offices come with authority granted, but teaching is the act of exerting authority. So it may or may not be associated with, with the office that grants that same authority. You think about our culture right now, there's an abundance, more than ever so before, of words that float out there. They, they leave us, whether from our mouths or from our fingertips, and they, they grow. And now, with the internet, they stay forever. Every careless word that's tweeted, every condemning phrase that's placed on Facebook, every divisive form of speech... For this we render an account. So let not many of you become teachers. If you think about what happens right now, the reason that we're all so confused is because our ears are filled with teachers of every kind. Everybody has a voice, an opinion. Everybody's encouraged to have a voiced opinion. You have to state it out loud publicly on the forum, this way or that way. And so in this abundance of teachers, without knowledge, there's an abundance of confusion. And so James says, let not many of you be teachers. We'll come back to that after we we look at his logical progression through the rest of this this section. So let's reread again verses 2 through 5 and come to the first point. The reason is because words are powerful. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a mature man. Remember back to chapter 1, 
The goal is maturity, that you may be mature, complete, lacking in nothing, brought to the end. It's that word telos, that for which God is driving us to. And so if you don't stumble in word, you're there. You've arrived at maturity. Telos. Of course, he says we all stumble in in many ways, and at the end he's going to say, no one has tamed the tongue. So there's an open-ended then judgment in which we're required to look. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a talos man, able to bridle the whole body as well. If we put the bits in the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their whole body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder. Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. So you'll notice throughout these analogies, he's bringing to the forefront the fact that the tongue is small, but it has an outsized effect. Right? It, it's a small rudder. It seems like an inconsequential thing to speak a word. And yet that word changes the entire course of a great ship, of a horse, and of a man, of the body. Remember, this is in the context of teachers, so it speaks directly to the body of Christ. There's danger in teaching because it changes the course of the body. It's applied to us as well. And so what I want you to notice out of that is the word, I've already said this, but the word comes first. And we think, at least I I don't generally tend to think this this way, but the word sets the course for where we're going. Whatever we speak, so we will do. What, what does that mean? If you think about how we as people interact with, with one another, when you're, when you're quick to hear, so you, you hear an initial argument and, and you wait and you listen and you withhold judgment as you listen, you haven't set course yet. But as soon as the mouth opens, we've set the direction of the ship and it's really hard to change that direction. As soon as we pronounce judgment by word, that's the direction we're headed. And you'll notice this when, when, when there's arguments between people. As soon as you voice your argument, then there's a tendency to dig in. The heels are, are ground in. You plant two feet and never to change again. Of course, by God's grace, sometimes that happens. But that's not the tendency of the word. It's course setting. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's mature, able to bridle the whole body as well. James's point is you stick the bit in the horse's mouth and the horse is going to go wherever, wherever that bit directs him. There's someone sitting on top moving the direction of the bit. So it's not as if the tongue is just all on its own. But it changes It changes the the locomotion, the course, the direction of that horse. And and he says it does the same thing for ships, so something even bigger. But he adds a little bit to his analogy as he moves from the horse to the ship. And notice that he keeps repeating the whole body. He wants us to hear that. It moves everything, not, not just the tongue, not just the head. The whole body goes. But with the ships, he adds to this analogy, they're great, They're driven by strong winds, but they're still directed 
by a very small rudder. So you think about a ship on the open sea, the winds go this way and that way, there can be storms. And James says, no matter which way the external winds are going, the course of the ship is still plotted by the rudder. Physically, you may be able to think of exceptions of that, but James is teaching us something about the tongue. There's all kinds of external influences that we can blame the course of our lives on. The, the winds, right? The mighty storm of God comes and it blows us off track. Or the, the winds that we can blame on Satan. But in fact, James says, though there's big, great external winds, this great ship is still turned on its course by the rudder. And the one who controls the rudder controls the direction of the ship. So watch out. He says, wherever the, the will of the pilot desires. Jesus says that we speak out of the abundance of our heart. So the reason that, that words are tell, telling, that they're a bellwether, if you don't know what that word means, it, it just means like a, a forewarning. They're going to show us what, what will happen. Is because they come out of the abundance of who we are. We speak words. So if you would turn back to chapter 1 and remember in verse 18, in the exercise of his will. So if you take this analogy of the ship, the ship goes wherever the, the rudder turns, which is where the pilot wills. In the exercise of his will, now he's talking about God, the Father in the heavens above, the Father of lights, who gives every good and perfecting gift. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So the pilot of the ship that speaks in chapter 1, verse 18, is God, should be God. Right. So in the analogy of the body, Jesus is the head that controls the mouth. That's the pilot. That's what should be the case. We're brought forth by his word, people created by the word. And then in verse 21, he adds to that, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted. So, God the pilot directs with his will by the word. He gives us birth. So, he's directing the course of the ship, the course of the horse, and the body of Christ. And our goal, then, is to receive this word implanted. And this is important because we speak. We have to have words but the words that flow forth from us should be labor-doing words that are a reflection of God's words. We should gush forth with the word of God because that's what must be internal to us. When that's not the case, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart we speak. There's another word that can come forth, and James is going to get to that point. But right now, what he wants us to know is the tongue is dangerous purely because it's powerful and it sets our direction. And you can see that with a nation, you can see that with the church, and you can see that with ourselves. Where we speak, there we'll go. In the middle of verse 5, he adds to that analogy, and he says, Behold how great a four is to set a flame by such a small fire. So he keeps that idea of an outsized effect, powerful words, but now he changes the analogy from a horse and a bit, from the, the ship and the rudder, to 
fire, a little kindling. And he's, he's moving into the next portion of his argument. It's still small and outsized effects, but we see that now there's this sense of a lack of control. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. So in the first phase, he says the ship goes wherever the pilot directs it, by his will. But now we have this analogy that makes it sound like there's an escaping of the word that exerts action outside of the will of the pilot because it's also like a flame. I would wager that everybody in here has some experience with that. You have a, a will, and you issue forth a, a word. And now, now sometimes, whether we see it consciously or not, that word issues forth out of a desire for evil. And so it is directing what happens in a very real sense, even if we don't recognize it as such coming forth from us. But there are other times when we say a word that we, we haven't thought about, and it goes forth and it, it has this outsized effect on all those around us, and, it, and it, it picks up steam because words create. And so we know that still this is how God made the world, right? God spoke an utterance, but the very word that came out that gave life is a person, Jesus. And so our words are a reflection of that. There's a sense in which they leave us and then they have a life of their own. So see how great a forest can be set aflame by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire. And James is using this in a very negative way. He says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The scripture reading this morning is a counterbalance to that, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute, because there are two fires that can light up our tongue. But no doubt about it, either way, the tongue is a fire. It moves forth from us, and it can set forth a flame again. That can be good, or it can be evil. But here in verse 6, he says the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the cosmos. Remember, to understand this, God created the world by words. He created a world which was good by words, a world of good. He spoke with a tongue of fire, and he made a world that was good. We speak with a tongue of fire, a world of iniquity. And so all of the world can, can come in, and, and there's a, another... Another world of iniquity made, we can see that in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent speaks with a tongue of fire and issues forth a word. And sin enters the world and death through sin. The tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity, and it's established among our members as that which defiles the whole body. So again, he brings us back to this idea that it's not just part. It's not a partial tainting that we, we speak and just the tongue receives the effect. The tongue defiles everything. When we speak, it defiles everything. We're all made unclean. If you use that language of uncleanness and take it back to the Old Testament as the body of Christ brought into his presence holy people 
And then we speak and the tongue defiles the entire body. Remember what happens to unclean things in the presence of the holy God. They're consumed by fire. That's the end. And so James, in reflecting on this, he gives a, a, a phrase that's, that's difficult for us to understand. But he says the course of our life, or maybe literally the, the wheel of our, our genesis, our beginnings, our genealogy, our birth is set on fire by Gehenna. Translation probably says hell, but it's a little more specific than that. And we, we gain some context in, into what this means. So if you would, um, turn with me. Sorry, I lost my reference here. Turn with me to Second Chronicles 20, well, 33. We'll, we'll do 33. Just keep your finger in James. We find out what Gehenna is. So Ahaz and Manasseh were both guilty of burning their sons with fire. And this was done, so look in verse 6. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and Ben-Hinnom. And that is the word that's, that's transliterated as Gehenna in the New Testament. He practiced witchcraft using divination. He practiced sorcery, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. And so this topic is picked up in the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah talks quite a bit about the valley of Gehenna. But it's always the place that's associated with giving up your sons and your daughters, burning them in fire to the god Moloch the king, Moloch. And as time goes on, it becomes a valley that's, that's not just for that, but a valley of, of refuse and every worthless thing. And so you, you throw the trash into the valley and it, it's set on fire. But if you take all of that language, that context, and bring it back to the book of James, the tongue is a fire, the world of iniquity, the tongue is established among our members as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the wheel of our beginning, our birth, and is set on fire by Gehenna. You see what happens with the tongue. It gives you a clue as to how, how our words function. So hold in, in one, one hand the, the concept of sacrificing your children to Moloch. You burn them with fire. Why? So that you can obtain your evil desire. So James is going to bring this to our attention in chapter 4. Why are you arguing? Why are you quarreling? Why are you using your words to destroy one another? It's so that you can obtain that which you desire, and it's wicked. We burn one another up. We use the words, God's words, destructively to divide wrongly, to destroy, to steal, to take. And we do it for wicked desires. It's a sacrifice in which we're burning up for, for the, the one that, thinks, that we, we think can produce the outcome we want. And so every evil thought, every evil word we issue forth as a, as a judgment, a curse on our brothers, is to kill them. 
Jesus, remember, says, you call your brother fool, you raka, you've committed murder. So this is the danger of the tongue. It's set on fire by Gehenna. It issues forth out of our heart every evil desire, and it comes out in word. So moving on in verse 7, we have a second, second reason that the tongue is destructive. So verses 7 and 8, every kind, every, every species of beasts and birds, of creeping things and creatures of the sea is tamed. Remember, when God made the world, he put Adam in it and he says, I'm going to bring all of them by you and you're going to give them a name. You, you give a word that names these, and in so doing, you're beginning the mandate of bringing the world under dominion. We, we have dominion by words. You can, you can think about this in, in understanding uh, how God made the world. We, we describe it by a word. So gravity, it's a word. On its own, it has no meaning, but it describes a way in which God made the world one of the one of the, the reasons that things fall down. And that word has power because in it we understand and are able to subdue. The same is true of animals. He gives them a name. And he says, every beast, every bird, every creeping thing, every creature of the sea is tamed by words. But no one can tame the tongue. And so he pictures the tongue as part of that creation, which is to come under the dominion of Adam, but it has not happened Everyone is tame, but not the tongue. And he says, why? It is, uh, my translation says restless, but if we are keeping with the, the translation of chapter 1, the word would be unstable. So remember, in chapter 1, he says, ask in faith without judgment, so without making a wrong division of what God is doing, or as we're going to find out in this context, without cursing your brother, Remember, God gives trial, and our tendency is to lash out either at God or, that, or at those who are made in the image of God. If you do that, don't expect to receive anything from the God who gives generously because you're double-minded and unstable. He's using this to bridge into the next section. The tongue is unstable because we think it can have two masters. It's an unstable evil. It's like a, a wild horse. That can't be broken. So that's the first part of his, his reason there in verse 8. And the second part is it's full of deadly poison. That word for poison, it's only used two other times in the New Testament. One is in Romans. And it's a quotation out of Psalm 140. That the poison of ass or, or serpents or vipers is under your lips. So, picturing then the, the poison that comes forth from a snake make, makes sense, right? This, this fire, this tongue that's set on fire, that contains deadly poison to kill, to destroy, to bring down our brothers, it issues forth like Satan in order to destroy and to confuse. So, it's a deadly poison. The second, second way this word is used is in James as well in chapter 5. He says, your gold and your silver have rusted in verse 3 of chapter 5, and their rust will be a witness against you. The rust is the word for poison. 
the gold and silver, which shouldn't, shouldn't corrode, become poisoned. And it, we'll talk about why that is in a, in a few weeks. But it's that same idea, it corrodes, it destroys, and it brings death. And so then we move into that last section in which James says the tongue is double-minded. The reason that it's dangerous is because it's double-minded and unstable. With it, verse 9, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brother, and these things ought not to be. This is a point that's picked up by many of the New Testament authors, particularly John. So in his epistle, 1 John, he says, If you say that you walk in the light and yet you hate your brother, you walk in the darkness and the light is not in you. We can't proclaim a love of God and yet hate our brother. We can't praise God and curse our, curse our brother with the same mouth. It's nonsensical. Because they're made in the image of God. And so if you curse your brother, you are cursing God. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brother, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. So in his, in his analogy there in the last two verses, he says, your mouth is like, is like a fountain. Can it produce both fresh water and salty water? He gives a, a second set of analogies. <clears throat> which don't have any negative connotation. So can a fig tree produce olives, or can an olive tree produce figs? Both of those are good. But he says, God created the world so that by nature we produce the fruit of the thing that we are. Even if it's a good thing, a fig tree can't produce olives, and an olive tree can't produce figs. But how much more can a spring that should produce fresh water produce bitter, salty water? Well, his, the answer to his rhetorical question is, these things can't be. And yet they are. We praise God. We shout the praises of God, as we read in Psalm 49, with a two-handed, uh, two-edged sword in our hand. It's a picture of that which comes out of our mouth. Our mouths are like God's mouth. The words that we speak are two-edged swords. And yet... We curse our brother. Such things cannot be. Now James, James is going to unpack what this means. It's not, it's not just talking about forms of speech. Particularly what James has in mind comes out of the, the conflict that he sees the church in. They're being persecuted. So if we go back to, to Acts and you look at what happened to Stephen in chapter 6, the synagogue of the freedmen were not able to cope with the wisdom and the spirit of Stephen's words, and so what did they, what did they do? They went and they spread lies. They used words to combat words. Those who claimed to worship the same God, Yahweh, cursed their brother and brought about his death. Such things cannot be. So James says, watch out. Let not many of you be teachers knowing that every non-working word. And that doesn't mean that words will not work. They, they do. Every word that comes forth from us does a work. 
whether it's intentional, unintentional, whether it's good or bad, but those words that do not work in building up the kingdom of God will receive an account. They will be brought under judgment. And so we come back then to the context of James. James chapter 2, verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then bringing that full circle in James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, which we'll get to next week, but it, it brings an inclusio around this text. He says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? And so specifically then, in context, you are in trouble. James says, ask of God for wisdom, the wisdom to have joy and to be matured in the midst of trouble, and God will give, but not if you open your mouth in judgment against God or against those made in the image of God. Expect not that man to receive anything, because here we find out that if you do that, you are a judge of the law, not a doer of the law. There's only one lawgiver and judge. So we'll talk more about what that means. Obviously, there is judgment in Scripture, and we're called to judge with our mouths, but only to do so under subjection and using the words of God. So we'll hold on to that for next week. If you would, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We realize that we possess in us an unstable evil. And Lord, we need your help. We need, we need like Isaiah, like Paul says in Romans, to come to your word, to the law, and to have our mouth shut. So that when we come to you, we speak nothing but look in awe on you. And our only response can be the response of Isaiah. Lord, we're a people of unclean lips. We worship you. But our words outside of worship tell a lie. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring the fire, the burning coal that comes from your fiery ones to our lips so that our lips are set on fire, not by Gehenna, but by the Spirit who brings and he divides in righteousness, he creates new. And, Lord, we want to have mouths like that that speak new things, that speak creation and life, that judge rightly, and so, Lord, we pray that you would do that in us today. We pray these things in the name of the Word. Amen.